0: All right, as we get to continue our study of the life of Jesus, we are finishing this study this quarter, and we're focused this quarter, as I've mentioned, on the last week of Jesus's life. And there's several events that unfold. In fact, I noted last week that 25 plus percent of the Gospels are dedicated to the last week of Jesus's life, to seven days in the life of Jesus. That's a significant portion of Scripture that's focused on such few days. Last week, we talked about the triumphal entry. This week, we're going to examine what we'll simply call the temple cleansing. It's recorded in all four gospel accounts. I want to read through all four accounts before we go any further. Let's start with Matthew's account. Uh, You'll see Matthew's account in chapter 21, but it only spans two verses. Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 and 13. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Now we'll go into Mark's account Mark chapter eleven, a little bit longer, verses fifteen to nineteen. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, it is, it is, is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Now over to Luke's account. Luke, like Matthew, is only a two-verse account. This is in Luke chapter 19, verses 45 and 46. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And finally, we'll go to John's account. John chapter 2, he has the longest account of all of these. John chapter 2, it's verse 13 through 22. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus sent, went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. That's the four accounts as they appear in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, one of the interesting things, and you may have noticed this already, is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all presented their story towards the end of their gospel, while John's appears early in his gospel. There is a chronological disparity here, at the very least. John presents this event as an early event in the ministry of Jesus. In fact, the only other event in the life of Jesus that really precedes this one, according to John, is the wedding at Cana. Matthew, Mark, and Luke present it as an event in the last week of Jesus' life. And obviously, since I've saved it for this part of our study, you can tell where I side on this. But let's do a little bit of critical thinking and examination as to why there is this disparity chronologically. When we try to reconcile this, we need to consider the options that are available to us. Some scholars do believe that there are two different temple cleansings. That one occurred that John recorded, and it occurred early in the ministry of Jesus, and then a second temple cleansing occurred in the last week of Jesus' life. And, and there are some reasons as to why scholars uh, like the, some scholars at least, like this idea. Uh, and it has to do with the fact that um, John's gospel has some unique details. John tells us some things about this event that, no other, that none of the other gospels do, like the whip of cords and, and some other, the, the presence of the type of animals, or, or the type of animals that were present, I should say. Some of those factors, some of those details John has in the other Gospels don't, making his a very d- distinct story. Um, and so uh, because of that, a lot of scholars uh, will contend that there are two different temple cleansings. Now, you can not it's not easy to argue against it, uh, because they, if you believe John's chronology is, is correct, it's hard to argue that there is not two temple cleansings. And I'm not really against there being two temple cleansings. I'm just not convinced that there were. I, I kind of, on a lot of these things, last week I presented the the chronology of the last week and and the basis for me believing that the, uh, uh, the, day, the Passover day was on Friday and, and, and that Jesus was crucified on Friday as opposed to another day of the week, that sort of thing. I'm kind of, when it comes to these issues, I, I kind of view it from the lens of, of an of instant replay in a football game. You know how instant replay works? There's a ruling on the field, and the instant replay has to, has to p- provide undisputable evidence for you to overturn it. And I'm kind of the guy sitting here going, all right, I, I need plenty of evidence to make me overturn my way of thinking already. And so that's kind of how I, I approach even this. There could be two different temple cleansings, but I don't feel like there's enough evidence to support that. I've provided a couple of verses up here And if you were to go look at those, you would find out that they're references to the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. We didn't talk about the feeding of the 4,000 in this series of lessons. It's very similar to the feeding of the 5,000. What stands out to me about those two events is there there are a lot of people who think that the feeding of the 4,000 is just a repeat of the feeding of the 5,000 because there are so many similarities between the two. But Matthew and Mark both present those events as separate separate occurrences. Feeding of 5,000 and feeding of 4,000, both events appear in Matthew and Mark. That seems to give credence to the fact that there were two separate feedings of multitudes because they are recorded twice in the same Gospels. It's interesting to me that all four Gospels record only one temple cleansing. Only one. And, and for me, that seems to be evidence enough for me to say, okay, I think there was probably only one. I could be wrong, and it's okay if I'm wrong, because this isn't changing any, anything theologically or doctrinally if there's, if there's two. But since each Gospel only records one, I lean towards the fact that there probably was only one occurrence of this. Because if there were two, I feel like it would be easy for one of the gospel writers to include both, just like they did with the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. Because to me, if you've got the feeding of the 5,000, why record the feeding of the 4,000? Why duplicate similar stories? Why not leave that one off and make room for something else that's better? That's kind of how I feel with the temple cleansing. If there were two of them I feel like one of the gospel writers probably would have recorded both of them. But that's not even a strong argument, so I concede that. I, I, I concede that to whoever wants to debate me. Um, so if there's not two, then what are our options? The first option is to assume that John's chronology is correct. This assumption argues that the synoptic gospels placed the temple cleansing during Jesus' last week because it was the only recorded visit of Jesus To Jerusalem in those Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke only send Jesus to Jerusalem one time during the last week of his life, other than Luke's record of Jesus going to the Passover when he was 12 years old. John's Gospel has him in and out of Jerusalem multiple times. In fact, if you go to John's Gospel, there are five different religious events. That Jesus attended in Jerusalem. These are the there's the feast of the Jews in John chapter five and verse one, the feast of booths in John chapter seven and verse two in particular, the feast of dedication in John chapter ten, and then another uh, Passover that's not uh, specifically identified in any unique way that's recorded in John chapter eleven and twelve. So, but because the synoptic gospels don't record Jesus's earlier visits to Jerusalem for other religious events, they could only include the temple cleansing in their account of the final Passover visit. Meanwhile, John can do it on the front end because he's recording multiple events. John is focused on Jesus' work in Jerusalem. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are focused on Jesus' work in Galilee. That seems to be a, 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 dif- a difference between the two. And what, here's what favors this approach to it. If John, John being focused on, on Jesus' work in uh, Jerusalem means that he's going to present the Passover in its chronologically correct time period, whereas the, the synoptic gospels only taking the G- Jesus to Jerusalem once have to save it for the end of his life. But here's the thing, or here's why we'll favor this one sometimes. It's because John does provide some chronological time markers in his gospel. You remember the wedding at Cana? In John chapter 2, what did John say? Which miracle? uh, Was this? uh, I'm trying to ask a question. I need to forget that. John says the the miracle at Cana, the turning water to wine, was the what miracle? First miracle, the first sign, he says. That's in John chapter 2. That's the story that immediately precedes John's record of the temple cleansing. If you go over to John chapter um, 4, he records the healing of the official's son. And he goes on to say in John chapter 4 and verse 54 that that was Jesus' second sign or second miracle. So John provided some little indicators of chronology early in his gospel, and that leads some people to believe that, that John's placement of the temple cleansing must be accurate because it falls between the first and second sign that Jesus performed. There's a pretty good uh, argument there, if you ask me. But John's gospel obviously favors theology over chronology. That's a challenge because John is not always concerned with having things be in a timely, orderly fashion. He's not like Luke who wants to provide an accurate, orderly, detailed account of the things that happen. John, by his own words, by his own admission in John chapter 20, makes it known his purpose for writing, and that is to cause his readers to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. In other words, John's Gospel isn't worried about having things in an orderly fashion. It's worried about presenting the information you need to know that Jesus was the Son of God. That's why he only has, what is it, seven miracles in the whole Gospel? That, that's why he's very selective about what events are, are included, what teachings are included, what interactions are included, and he leaves off some—he doesn't even talk about the birth of Jesus. That wasn't significant f- to him for his writing this gospel that will lead people to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So John is very theologically driven rather than chronologically driven, so that's the argument against him, being the, him having the chronologically correct placement of this event. That brings us to the third option we have when it comes to this disparity, and, and that is to assume that the synoptic gospels have the correct chronology. And favoring this option are two things. One is the statement in Mark chapter 11 and verse 18 that this event caused the religious leaders to seek a way to destroy Jesus. Now, leading up to this, we've talked about the uh, Raising of Lazarus, and at the conclusion of the raising of Lazarus, guess what? Religious leaders wanted to kill Jesus. Last week we studied the triumphal entry, and guess what? At the conclusion of the triumphal entry, what did the religious leaders want to do? They wanted to kill Jesus. Temple cleansing is next on this list, and it's another event that leads them to want to kill Jesus. This desire to kill Jesus makes more sense in the context of the last week of his life than it does the first days of his ministry. The other thing I think that gives credence to the placement of this uh, event in the last week of Jesus' life actually comes from John's Gospel. In John's Gospel, Jesus made the statement about destroying the temple and in three days raising it up. You're familiar, you're probably familiar with that declaration of Jesus that's recorded in John chapter 2 and verse 20, but you're probably most familiar with it because it was used in the case against him when he went on trial before the Jews. And it was used as a way of mocking him as he hung from the cross. I provided the, the references to those occasions on the screen. My thinking is, that statement would be most likely used against him in the, in the Jewish court and at the cross. It would be most likely remembered if it happened closer to the time frame of those events. Meaning, it seems more likely it would have been said during the last week of his life when it could be used in the court and when it would be remembered to use as he hung on the cross. Because if three years went by, it's going to be a lot easier to forget that declaration than if only three days had gone by. I'm not saying that's a great argument, but it's something that makes sense to me. And so I've, I am more comfortable placing this event during the last week of Jesus' life rather than during the first days of his ministry. And it really doesn't matter which is correct. I'm just going to always tell you why I do what I do. With that being said, let's consider if this did happen during the last week of Jesus' life, When did it happen? Last week I introduced you to my nice little timeline up here, and hopefully it still makes sense to you. What I have done is laid out the days of the month in which Passover occurred, and here on Nisan 15, that's the day of the Passover. Now, I contend that that day occurred on Friday, um, but you'll also notice the color-coding. Remembering that the Jewish day starts at sundown and uh, it starts at sundown and goes for 24 hours till the next sundown. And so a Jewish day starts at least or approximately six hours before our own day. And unfortunately, I forgot to edit the time up at the top here. This is supposed to show what hour of the day it is, and I forgot to edit that. Um, But I want you to notice here, assuming this is about 6 p.m., going to 6 p.m. That's the idea. And for us, there is going to be an overlap of days. And so for us, our Thursday would start here at midnight and run to this midnight. But for them, it starts at 6 p.m. here and goes to 6 p.m. there. So I color-coded it so you'd see what, what day it falls on for you and I and as opposed to what day it falls on for them. Now, here's what we know about the events that are unfolding at this point. According to uh, Matthew and Luke, if you look at their accounts of the temple cleansing, it sounds like it occurred immediately after the triumphal entry on the very same day because they don't put any indicators of time between the two events. The only difference with Ma- between Matthew and Luke's accounts is that Luke does, sub- does include Jesus' lament over Jerusalem between the triumphal entry and the um, temple cleansing. That's the only difference between the two, but they both make it sound like it's the same, ex- same day. Mark is the one gospel that gives us some time frame. At the conclusion of the triumphal entry, if you look at Mark chapter 11 and verse 11, we're told that Jesus—Mark chapter 11, verse 11—we're 11, told that Jesus entered Jerusalem— And went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. That's the conclusion of the triumphal entry. He enters Jerusalem on the donkey, he makes his way to the temple, it's late in the day, he goes and takes a peek at the temple, he packs up and heads back to Bethany for the night. So, that is clearly indicating to us that the triumphal entry happened one day, he went back home to Bethany, And the events that are going to follow will happen on a different day. In fact, Mark chapter 11 and verse 12 says, On the following day, when they came from Bethany, which indicates that the events that follow are happening on the day after the triumphal entry. And then Mark will present the cursing of the fig tree before he gets to the temple cleansing. But the way Mark sets it up is that the cursing of the fig tree happened en route from Bethany to Jerusalem. That two mile stretch that Jesus is traveling from Bethany to Jerusalem, the day after the triumphal entry, he curses the fig tree before he gets to Jerusalem and goes to the temple. So, here's to sum this all up the temple cleansing ultimately occurred four days before the Passover. We know that, G- that and here's the thing we know that Mary anointed Jesus' feet six days before the Passover. That is specifically said in John chapter 12 and verse 1. So, based on my calculations, Mary's anointing of Jesus' feet would happen on Nisan 9, which would be, according to my timeline, would be on the Saturday before. And then the triumphal entry occurred the very next day after Mary anointed Jesus' feet, which would be five days before Passover and would be the Sunday before his death. And then if the Passover did take place on Friday and we know that the temple cleansing happened the day after the triumphal entry, then it would take place on Nisan 11, which according to my timeline would be Monday. So just to give you an idea of where we are in the week of Jesus, he's only got four days left to live. So, we're progressing in the last week of Jesus' life. He has traveled from Bethany back into Jerusalem the day after the triumphal entry. He goes back to the temple, which he had visited the night before, only briefly. And he sees that there's a lot of commerce happening in the temple courts. Now, why was there commerce at the temple? A couple things you need to understand about what's going on Around Passover. First, you need to understand that there's commerce to accommodate the payment of the temple tax. Each Israelite who was numbered in the annual census, that means they are 20 years old and up, they were required to pay an annual half shekel temple tax. This is based on Exodus chapter 30, particularly verses 11 through 16. According to Exodus 30, this this temple tax, or this fund it wasn't called a temple tax in Exodus because they didn't have a temple yet but this fund was referred to as the Israelites ransom for his life so that there be no plague among them it was also referred to as an offering to the Lord and the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives and also referred to simply as atonement money it was specifically given for the service of the tent of meeting which means the tabernacle which was created at that time period and which eventually The temple took the place of. And so this offering that was required in Exodus chapter 30 for the tabernacle became an offering that was required to maintain the temple. This is the same tax that Jesus was approached to pay in Capernaum by collectors in Matthew chapter 17. And he turned to Peter and said, go grab a fish. Peter grabbed a fish and pulled a coin out of its mouth, and he paid his temple tax. Same exact thing. Now, here's the the, the catch. The payment of this temple tax could not be made in foreign currencies like the Roman denarii. So it had to be exchanged for appropriate temple currency. So money changers like banks had to be present in Jerusalem as you have this mass influx of people for the most holiest day of the Israelite, religion. You had to have these bankers present to do foreign currency exchange. Some of you have been there and had to do that before. They've got to change it into the Tyrrhenian shekel. Now, some suggest that the reason they had to do this is because the Roman currency had pagan deities on it. Well, that's not exactly ch- true. The Roman currency did have pagan deities on it, but that wasn't the reason they had to Exchange it for a Tyrrhenian shekel because the Tyrrhenian shekel had a pagan deity on it. The thing was, the, the, the men of Tyre, from whom we get the name Tyrrhenian shekel, they were known for caring about having accurate currency. In other words, Tyrrhenian coins were so reliable because the men of Tyre insisted that their coins be of the correct weight and should have the right amount of silver or gold in them. And so when it came to collecting the temple tax, guess what those religious leaders wanted? The purest of the pure coin. And so for a long period of time, that was the basic currency of the temple. And you had to exchange your money to meet that. So... The point is that there was a need for bankers in Jerusalem to accommodate the exchanging of currency. The other thing you need to realize is that there's commerce to accommodate the sacrifices associated with the feasts and associated with trips to the temple. Each Israelite was required to make animal sacrifices during the feast days. And those traveling great distances were permitted under Mosaic law to purchase animals upon arrival in Jerusalem rather than bring them from home. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 24 through 26 is where Mosaic law addresses this. It says, If the way is too long for you, so that you are not able to carry the tithe, referring to the animal you're going to tithe, uh, Then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice in you and your household leading up to the sacrifice. So, Deuteronomy gave permission. If you couldn't transport your sacrifice that long distance, well, then you can buy it when you get there. And so you have a lot of people. The Jews have dispersed over the entire Mediterranean Sea, all over the Roman Empire. And so they're going to be transported on boats across the Mediterranean Sea. They're going to be in caravans coming from long distances. They don't want to have to keep up with an animal the whole way. The other thing is that in addition to not having to transport such animals to Jerusalem, another benefit of purchasing your animal upon arrival was that they were guaranteed to be fit for the sacrifice. You have to remember, when a, when, when a Jewish person showed up at the temple, they had to present their animal and get it checked by the priest to make sure it met the qualifications of purity for sacrifice. What they did in Jerusalem is that, the, 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 it's my understanding that the, um, the temple itself owned, or the, the priests owned cattle, owned flocks. And they assured that what they had available to sell In Jerusalem would meet all qualifications. Now you can also see how this might get a little bit, um, what's the word, profitable, sketchy is a great word, for the priests. Because you could show up with the animal and they could find something wrong with it so you would have to buy one of theirs. So there is some of that Shady business also involved. But there is a necessity of having this kind of commerce in Jerusalem because some people are going to need to buy a sacrifice they, to, to make. But here's the thing. If the temple system was to carry on, it was necessary that such facilities, that is the money changers and the animal market that such facilities be provided, but it was not necessary that they should be in the temple precincts, and it is this to which Jesus took exception. Jesus isn't offended that there's money changing happening. Jesus is not offended that there are animals being sold. Jesus is offended by where they're doing it. And let me skip ahead for just a moment, um, and I'll come back to all this. Don't worry, we'll come back to all that. Let me get to to this. There's a model of the temple. It's a very large complex, but what you need to understand is that this is the official temple. This larger building in the middle, that's where your holy place and most holy place are going to be. This actually is the court of the women, which I've talked about Sunday night. The rest of this, this large colonnaded area, that's the court of the Gentiles. Anybody can go in there. The marketplace for these animals and for these money changers, was out in this area, this open area outside the temple proper called the Court of the Gentiles. And so they don't have to have their market in this area. Their market should actually be out here, outside of the whole Temple Mount, outside of this whole complex where people come to worship the Lord. That's where Jesus's problem is. Sell it in Jerusalem. Sell it on the outskirts of Jerusalem. It doesn't matter, but don't sell it inside the temple complex. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. Let me back up and get get back to all this. Oh, too far. So there's commerce in the temple. Well, let me rephrase that. There's commerce in Jerusalem because it's needed for what's happening during this feast, but the commerce does not have to be in the temple. That's the point you need to grasp. Now, let's talk about what Jesus did and what he said. First thing John tells us when we look at his account in particular, because he's the only one with this detail, is that Jesus made a whip of cords and drove, out, drove them all out with the sheep and the oxen. I love to watch this on this scene, this episode in Jesus' life. I love to watch it in the movies about Jesus' life, which we have dozens of now. And it's always fun to see how they depict this. Because this is the one event in the life of Jesus that seems inconsistent with his teachings. Making a whip. I had a hard time, you know, I love to throw artwork up here. Uh, from, the, from great artists of history, museum pieces, and that sort of thing, just, just because l- last week it provided a great contrast to the way the biblical account reads. Sometimes it's useful, sometimes it's not. I couldn't find much artwork that didn't show Jesus hitting a person with a whip. Go look it up. In the great museum pieces of art, Jesus is always aiming his whip at a person, Doesn't that seem inconsistent with the guy who told us to turn the other cheek? The guy who told Peter to stay his sword? The guy who teaches us not to seek revenge? Doesn't that seem inconsistent? And so I've spent a lot of time examining this part of the text. What's the whip of cord for? And we have to think about it this way. We need to be careful to assume that Jesus is using the whip on people. I think it's significant. He drove them all out of the temple, referring to the, the uh, sellers and the buyers, with the sheep and oxen, though. He's driving out the animals, too. We need to be careful to assume the whip is aimed at people instead of just the animals. I get the impression, as I've studied this more, that Jesus isn't trying to hit people. He's trying to hurt animals, and the people are going with their animals. He's trying to escort everything out of the temple complex that has anything to do with merchandise and with commerce. And as one author pointed out, you can't really drive animals without something like a whip. You can herd people without something like a whip. But animals are much more difficult. And so I think we need to be careful to assume that Jesus is Indiana Jones and he's hitting people with a a whip in the temple courts. I don't think Jesus was aiming for people personally. I think he used the whip for the livestock in particular. And one reason I think that has to do with the third item on the list. I'll come back to the second. I should have put these in a different order. but Jesus told those who sold pigeons to take these things away. If Jesus really wanted to use the whip on people, why not use it on the pigeon sellers? With the pigeon sellers, he just said, hey, leave. Some have theorized that the reason he didn't uh, take as harsh action with the pigeon sellers is because they, the pigeons were sold to the poor people. If you couldn't afford the uh, sheep and the goats and the other cattle, the livestock, I should say, then you would buy a pigeon, and that would be used for a sacrifice. And when Joseph and Mary went to the temple shortly after Jesus' birth to do the purification uh, requirements for Mary, they had to buy the pigeon because they didn't have enough money. So a lot of people theorize that Jesus went softer on the, the seller of birds because they were there for the poor people. I don't necessarily buy that. I think you can't drive birds out like you can livestock. They're in cages, and I think he's in, he's ordering that the cages be grabbed and carried out. And he's just he's just hurting everyone out. And I think the fact that the whips aren't be, the whip is not being used on the seller of birds is an indicator that he's not aiming it for people. I think he's just trying to get the animals out of there as fast as he can, along with their owners. It doesn't feel, the more I study this, I don't sense that it's as much of a chaotic commotion and, and a stampede as much as it is uh, probably a little bit more organized than that, actually. Possibly. Maybe not. But I can't help but think the one who told me not to, the one who told me to turn the other cheek is not trying to hit people with a whip. Now, I also mentioned number two there. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. I love The image of Jesus just grabbing a table and flipping it. I don't know why that just when I the the Jesus we see in the New Testament. This is just a new insight into his humanity. Again, I don't think he's trying to harm anybody. I have no sense that he's out to hurt anybody. He is trying to demonstrate that this doesn't belong here. There's there's absolutely um, some individuals here who are trying to um, take advantage of the the situation. Others who probably are just making their living. And we'll get around to that in a moment. Um, But I, I don't believe Jesus focuses on specifically the people who are taking advantage. I think his focus is on this is a place of worship, not a place of commerce. And we'll get around to that as well. Um, but here in the moment, when it comes to the money changers, just that the idea of Jesus flipping tables over and Jesus pulling out their coins, he's demonstrating, <laughs> visibly demonstrating to them, this does not belong here. Again, I don't think he's trying to harm anybody in the process. Stan. I don't den- deny that or disagree with that at all. Uh, right now, uh, we're going to get around to that because when I get to what he says, that's where we really find out what's driving him. The words that he says, the connections he makes to the Old Testament, in particular, that's where we find out what's driving him and what his motivation is and what is what he's why he's doing this. One thing I want to I've emphasized as we look through the actions is I don't want us to get the impression that Jesus is trying to harm people. I, I've, I've battled with that for years, that Jesus would try to hit somebody and hurt somebody because that's not consistent with the teachings of Jesus. So I, that, that's kind of been my emphasis here um, in this point, uh, and, and we're about to get to the other in just a second. The other thing that I find interesting is Mark makes one other declaration that Jesus would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He's the only one that mentions this, and I thought this was fascinating. How do you, how do you enforce this? How long did he stay at the temple? Was he there all day, not letting people walk through? This is a giant complex with multiple entry points. How does he stop it? And, and I also wondered why. Why would he not let people carry things through? It's interesting, the Mishnah, which is the, uh, basically the commentary of the rabbis on the, the Hebrew Bible. And the, the teachings of the rabbis in association with what the law taught. And, and in it this statement that uh, um, there's this prohibition against walking through the temple as if it's a shortcut. It says one should not use the temple mount for a shortcut. Now, the temple mount was huge, and so apparently some people would just walk up and, and cut through the temple mount to get to the other side of the city as a... And, and not use it, not respect it as a place of worship. And it's as if Jesus is enforcing that here as well. If he, if he saw somebody coming up and just using it as a cut through, he was sending them out. I, it, that's just a fascinating little detail to me. But it speaks, in my opinion, to what's really driving Jesus' frustration here. We'll come around to that in just a moment. Sir. Oh, Ben. I'm sorry, I don't know why I said so. Ben. Ben. <laughs> Yeah, just crack it in the air a couple times. I agree. I, he, he didn't have to aim it at anybody. Yeah. But it's just, it was strange looking at art today. Every one of them has somebody laying on the ground and he's about to hit them with it. And that's just not the Jesus that I picture. But I do picture him being strong and, and forceful in this moment uh, because of that righteous indignation, or another word we're going to use in just a moment, zeal, um, and intimidating even, um, but not Not dangerous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. emphasizing how much he emptied the place, almost. Oh, the target, yeah. That's a great point. Thank you, Mike. If y'all didn't hear that, he was talking about the Greek and how uh, it speaks to the, it can speak to the emphasis being that he drove out the, the sheep and the oxen. Even the sheep and the oxen is what he was saying. Um, so now let's look at what he said. Most of this comes from John's Gospel, John chapter two and verse sixteen. He said, "Do not make my Father's house a house of merchandise." Now, we've already noted how they were using the uh, physical structure of the temple as a marketplace, and they they had turned the religious authorities had turned the sacrificial system, which God intended for spiritual reconciliation, into a business which they intended for their financial accumulation. So Jesus is ultimately here condemning the secular motivations which had undermined the sacred acts that were to be associated with the temple. I, I alluded to this before, along with Kurt, that um, there, there is some shady business quite likely happening here, particularly from the top down, from the chief priests in particular, that they probably were selling slots in the, in the temple courts to the people, to the people who had their own, their own businesses. And they would sell a space in the temple court. You had to buy that from the chief priests to have that ideal location to sell your goods. So they're probably making money that way. And then the, the merchants who are selling are probably inflating their price inside the temple courts especially. Because if you've waited that long to purchase your animal, why not raise the price? And then I mentioned about the chief priests having ownership of the the livestock in the area and ensure that their livestock was pure and ready to be sacrificed and therefore could say no to whatever you brought and force you into having to buy their own. So there probably is a lot of shady business going on and it is benefiting those in the positions of authority. It is interesting that none of that is particularly mentioned by Jesus. Or by the gospel authors, which indicates at the very least that it's not all encompassing, that everybody is not guilty of this. So Jesus starts off by criticizing the fact that this has been, this system that existed for reconciling man with God has been turned into a way to just get rich. Another statement that is significant is what he says in Mark 11, verse 17, as well as Matthew and Luke. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. I emphasize Mark's version because he includes the last three words, for all nations. This is a quote from Isaiah chapter 56, verses 6 and 7. My house, verse 7 of Isaiah 56. Uh, actually, I want to read both verses of Isaiah 56, verse 6 and 7. And the foreigners who joined themselves to the to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 56 is about the inclusion of the Gentiles. And so this reference to foreigners and this reference to the temple being a house of prayer for all people indicates that this commercial marketplace was affecting the court of the Gentiles, as I've already mentioned. And we'll go ahead and show that picture again. What Jesus is saying when he speaks about, when he uses the phrase, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, is he's criticizing the fact that this marketplace is infringing upon some people's opportunity to come to the temple and worship the Lord and pray to the Lord. Because if you're a Gentile, the court of the Gentiles is is the only place you can go. And here you are as a Gentile, in the court of the Gentiles there to worship the Lord, to to pray to the Lord, and you can't think because of all the animal noises that are going on around you. And so their activity is interrupting Worship. Imagine just having um, a marketplace in our lobby. Don't you think it would affect us a little bit on Sunday morning? That's what's happening here. And the problem is the religious leaders and the the Jews don't really care because they view the Gentiles as unclean anyway. They don't think they deserve to be there worshiping. And so they don't mind stepping on their toes and interfering with their worship. Jesus is condemning this mentality of religious exclusivism that's being promoted by the disruption of the Gentiles' ability to worship. And then we get to this third phrase, the one that Kurt was referencing, the den of thieves. Because Jesus says, "You, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of of thieves. The den of thieves reference comes from Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 11 where the Lord rhetorically asked has this house which is called by my name that's, that's a reference to the temple has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes and yes there is the possibility and even the likelihood that Jesus or that Jeremiah and Jesus are referring to the uh, unfair practices and the the uh, um, uh, unjust policies of financial accumulation that are happening here. But it should be noted that Jesus didn't just drive out those who sold. He also drove out those who bought. Isn't that interesting? Buyers and sellers alike. And so it's probably more correct to understand Jesus' actions and words, not as a condemnation of any specific malpractice, but of the whole system of sacrificial worship which had developed into big business. In other words, Jesus is declaring that the whole system of sacrificial worship for all its scriptural origin had developed into something that was no longer acceptable to God. And this may be more consistent with the Jeremiah reference to begin with because in the context of Jeremiah chapter 7, the people of Judah were trusting in the temple of God that was in their midst rather than living a holy life of faith before him. And they were like thieves hiding in a cave, thinking they were safe from being punished. Isn't that why thieves resort to caves? Robbers go to their hideouts for protection and for safety. And the idea is that the people of Israel, the Jews, had come to uh, find their source of safety and protection in the presence of the temple instead of the presence of God in their everyday lives. And so it seems that Jesus is here being critical not just of the small infractions of unjust financial accumulation, but the bigger scope of the entire nation totally misunderstanding proper worship, totally misunderstanding the point of the sacrificial system, totally misunderstanding the importance of faithfulness to God. And with that, I want us to consider a couple of things about this story. The temple cleansing reveals Jesus' zeal. It's John chapter 2 and verse 17 from which I get this terminology. John chapter 2 and verse 17 tells us that Jesus' disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. That's a quote from David, Psalm chapter 69 and verse 9. Zeal for your house will consume me. Now, when we talk about zeal, we don't use that word much today anymore. But zeal is, is more like our term for passion. Passion is not a word that is used positively in the Bible very much. It's usually used in the sense of a sinful passion throughout Scripture. Zeal is the word that, that conveys our idea of, of passion today. Passion for a sport or passion for a hobby or passion for... Uh, and achievement, that sort of thing. And with the, this level of passion, and remember, Jesus' passion is for his Father. With that level of passion comes the desire for things to be done right. This is where that idea of righteous indignation comes in. Because what Jesus does here mimics the way his Father handled the Mount Sinai episode with the golden calf. When you really think about it, he's imitating his father who at Mount Sinai came down with righteous indignation and dealt with a people who were transgressing his law. And Jesus, in similar fashion, is responding to this presence of ungodliness in the temple like his father had done at Mount Sinai. And this all goes back to his zeal for, the, for his father and for his father's house. And so when we look at the temple cleansing, we need to set it in context, and we need to appreciate it from the sense that it shows how passionate, how zealous Jesus was for his father. But we also need to remember the significance of this event has to do with fulfillment of prophecy. In Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 21, Zechariah promised the coming of a day when there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts. There's also a passage in Malachi chapter 3, in the first three verses. It's a, a prophecy that, that speaks to John the Baptist first and foremost, because it starts this way. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. But then it goes on to say, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Verse 3 continues with, He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Who were the sons of Levi? What was their occupation or role? Priests. The the whole priesthood and the employees of the temple had to be from the tribe of Levi. And this prophecy from Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1 speaks of the Lord coming to his temple of refining and purifying the sons of Levi. Levi so that they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. There is some language here prophetically related to the cleansing of the temple. And here's the thing. Jewish messianic expectation included the belief that the Messiah would renew and purify the temple, which had been desecrated by pagan conquerors like Antiochus Epiphanes in 167 B.C., in Pompeii in 63 BC, but it also had been desecrated by the false worship of God's own people, as we've talked about thus far. And so we have this situation where Jesus' activity in the temple is fulfilling messianic prophecy. That's something significant in our last week of Jesus' life. Remember, I mentioned last week how, how I feel like Jesus is marching through this week and Doing check boxes. Got that prophecy, got that prophecy, got that prophecy. Sorry about that. And here's what's interesting to me no one stopped Jesus, did they? Now, we can talk about Jesus' omnipotence all we want, but he is in human flesh. He is a human who gets tired, who gets hungry, and he's just one man. And no one stopped him. Why do you think no one stopped him? I know our time is up, but let's share this one last thought. I think several of them who were present in their own conscience knew what was happening was wrong, and they knew what Jesus was doing was right. Say what? I think as he spoke and taught, because the Gospels do indicate that he was teaching that whole week in the temple, that they're hearing the Word of God condemn them through the mouth of Jesus. But there may also be the element of they had their messianic expectations and they're watching Jesus purify the temple as they so thought he w- the Messiah would. Because none of them are standing in opposition to him yet. Yet except for the chief priests and the rulers, the synagogue, I mean the Sanhedrin individuals. And it should be noted that as a result of his actions in the temple, the chief priests and scribes, which are two components of the Sanhedrin, they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. This is Mark 11, verse 18. They feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. He was still favored by the people Popular among the masses at that point. Because even what he does in the temple doesn't offend the people because they get it. They get it from his teaching. So no one's standing in opposition to him. One, because they know he's right. Two, because they've heard his teaching. Three, because they believe he's fulfilling Messianic prophecy. That's going to change in a few hours (laughs) that week. All right, thank you for your attention and your participation, and I look forward to studying this more with you uh, next week. Y'all have a blessed evening.